Hey, before we dive into covering the opening chapters of Master and Apprentice, I just have a few quick announcements. First things first, welcome to a whole new season. I hope you all enjoyed the interseason break episodes and are ready to dive into a truly great book in Master and Apprentice. I'm excited to get started with our discussion questions. As I'd mentioned the other week, I will read out the discussion questions before the credit roll of each episode, and then, in the following episode, I will share a few listener responses. So please send me your answers either on social media or via email at outerrimreadspod at gmail.com to have a chance at your answer being read out by me and enshrined in all of podcast audio history. And speaking of social media, we are now on Facebook and Instagram. If you're interested in giving us a follow on either platform, check us out at Outer Rim Reads on Facebook and Outer Rim Reads Pod on Instagram. Lastly, I cannot think of a more perfect time to recommend this show to someone you know. We're beginning a new season, there's no need to play catch-up on a book, we're just starting. New listeners can join at the perfect time. So if you know someone who's into books, someone who loves all things Star Wars, someone who's a fan of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, or even someone who you think might like this show, tell them about Outer Rim Reads. We've got enough seating and spotchka for everyone. Now let's get into episode 22 of Outer Rim Reads. Hello there, listeners, and welcome to episode 22 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels across the canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, the first of our second season, we will be covering chapters 1 through 3 of Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice, and I am joined today by the host of the Death Star Dispatch YouTube channel and podcast, Fred Avezano. Fred, how are you doing, man? Thanks so much for being on the show today. I am fantastic. Thank you for having me on. You know I absolutely adore Claudia Gray, and <laughs> I adore this book, so I'm really excited and honored to be here. Yeah, I'm honored to have you on, you know, to kickstart this second season into a great book. I'm excited. I'm really excited. Before we get into the book itself, though, do you mind giving the listeners just a background on where you began your Star Wars fandom, where you stand with the series, and then specifically your background with Master and Apprentice? Of course. So my first Star Wars experience ever, I was five (laughs) years old, went to a birthday party that was completely Phantom Menace themed. And we went to go see the film opening weekend. Completely changed my life. So that's also kind of where like my love for Qui-Gon came. Because yeah. I loved Qui-Gon growing up. So yeah, that was my first Star Wars experience from there. You know, as you get older, you know, you venture off to high school and stuff. I watched the prequels opening weekends as they came out. As you start getting into your teenage years, you know, you kind of neglect your nerd culture a little bit. Just to make yeah. life a little bit easier. <laughs> which is something I definitely did. And regret because I should have always stayed true to to myself. You know what I mean? Uh, I should have never pretended to be like somebody I wasn't. But with that being said, after the Disney purchase and the announcement of The Force Awakens, I started getting really excited. And after I saw The Force Awakens completely change my life again, I was like, I'm all in this time. I'm never going back anywhere else. This (laughs) is where I was meant to be. So that's basically my background and how all of my fandom started. Yeah. the short version, but um, with the book, all I remember is seeing on Twitter when it was announced that 
Claudia was going to be writing this book about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan's relationship pre-Phantom Menace. And I was like, okay, I'm on. I'm on board. <laughs> That's all I, I needed need, to hear. I, I, mean. I, need this, I need this book so badly. So yeah, that was that was a really exciting time too because again, I love Qui-Gon. And I think the relationship of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan is something that after you watch The Phantom Menace now, it's something you really want to dive more into and kind of see how that relationship developed and how it was right before those events so this book was a really fun read i enjoyed it a lot yeah i'm excited to get into it and i think claudia did a fantastic job portraying it and you know you're right the only kind of interactions we saw the only view into qui-gon and obi-wan's relationship that we've ever got was in the phantom menace and that was it and initially i will admit that i did not actually like qui-gon because i was mad at him for taking anakin along for the ride and just don't you realize what you're doing um but then you know once i you know got older and was able to understand his worldviews with the jedi and all that i started to appreciate his character more and you're right. As soon as I saw that this book would be coming out, I was like, I, I need to read this. I need more of their relationship, more of their backstory, because, you know, Qui-Gon has emerged as one of my favorites. And I really love what Claudia Gray did with his character and Obi-Wan's, you know, young, angsty teen Obi-Wan's <laughs> character in this book. So, yeah, you know, speaking of young, angsty teen Obi-Wan, doesn't it remind you of uh, Empire Strikes Back when Ben is trying to convince Yoda to train Luke? And he's like, no, he's too, uh, he's too old, and he's given all these excuses. And Ben goes, was I any different when you started training mm. me? And it kind of like just hits you, like, oh yeah. If you look at like Obi Wan now in this book, and you kind of compare him to like the young farm boy Luke, you're kind of like, oh, there's a little bit of similarities. It's kind of That's neat. A great point. <laughs> you know, they yeah. were all angsty teens at one point, even Obi-Wan. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point of connection. And I, you know, I, I love that there's a lot of connective tissue that we'll end up discussing. And it, it really is a, that's a great point. I never really considered that. <laughs> but yeah, though, let's get into these three chapters that we've got in front of us. Um, in season one and continuing into this season, before each chapter, I've just got a 150 word maximum uh, summary, and then we can get started discussing. So I'll give my chapter one summary and then we'll dive right into it. The Jedi Council has sent Master Qui-Gon Jinn and his apprentice, Obi-Wan Kenobi, to the planet Teth in order to investigate missing agricultural shipments. However, the mission goes wrong and the crime syndicate responsible for the theft attacks the Jedi. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are chased by guards through the hut compound, and they take a turn into one of the hut's spice hookah dens. In the den, the Jedi jump onto band platforms to escape the pursuing guards. Things go wrong when Obi-Wan misinterprets Qui-Gon's instructions, forcing the Jedi to separate. While Obi-Wan searches for a ship, Qui-Gon is able to take the hut crime lord hostage. When the Jedi Master brings Wando the Hutt to the hangar to check Obi-Wan's progress, he finds his apprentice surrounded by more guards and the Hutt's major domo, Thurible. Qui-Gon releases Wando to save Obi-Wan, and he manages to come to an understanding with Thurible. So, before I open the floor to you and your thoughts on this chapter as a whole, I'm just going to read this opening bit from the chapter, and I think it's one of my favorite openings to a Star Wars book that I've ever read. So... And I quote, There is no emotion, there is peace. There is no ignorance, there is knowledge. There is no passion, there is serenity. There is no chaos, there is harmony. Whoever wrote the Jedi Code, thought Qui-Gon Jinn, never had to deal with the huts. <laughs> and I think, right off the bat, 
this sums up Qui-Gon perfectly. <laughs> just like an introduction to his character in the least amount of words possible, in one thought. And we're just introduced right there. This is Qui-Gon Jinn. Nothing is more perfect than that opening. I absolutely love it. But I mean, not even leaving off the first page. If you think of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan in The Phantom Menace, and even straight in the beginning, you know, Qui-Gon directing Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan with the, yes, master, the really innocent kind of, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The real McGregor, is that you? <laughs> the, real, the real innocent kind of like, okay, whatever you say. And I mean, that and also I think of the scene where Darth Maul jumps down and on Tatooine and he's like, Anakin, yeah. drop, that whole thing. So Qui-Gon both gives directions and he's also, he can be a little bit loud, right? You know, like yep. with the Anakin thing. <laughs> And one of the first things is, you know, Obi-Wan to the left. Yes, Master, panted Obi-Wan, who was only steps behind Qui-Gon. I can hear the voices in my head. I can see the events happening. And it's so in line with the characters. Claudia is just amazing. I'm going to rave about her this entire however long this podcast is. Nobody can write relationships like her, which we'll get more into a bit later. Oh, for sure. I mean, right off the bat... This is the Qui-Gon that we know from the movies. And, you know, from the movie, I should say. And we didn't really get a lot of him, but instantly we're just like, this is him. You know, we know he's unorthodox when it comes to his relationship with the Jedi. But we also know, you know, how capable of a master he is. And, you know, in the thick of this scene right here where they're being chased by guards, you know, there's blaster fire behind them. You know, he's keeping his cool. That's also something that we know from him in The Phantom Menace. He is very much in the moment, in the now. You know, he does embody the serenity of the Jedi, but he also... Has the has the sass too, so it was just a great, uh, great opening. So they're being chased by these hut guards through the compound, and I want to touch on you mentioning, you know, how he's telling Obi Wan to the left, and Obi Wan's behind him. You know, he's panting, and Qui Gon's thinking to himself that he's confused of how Obi Wan is already tired because, uh, and I quote, their escape thus far had included no more than a three-minute run, and of course, scaling a twenty-meter wall, but in the proper meditative state, that shouldn't have been difficult. And so just as we're thrown into the physical conflict here of them just being in this deadly chase scene, we're thrown into kind of like this hidden conflict of disconnect where on the first page, Qui-Gon's already wondering, is he winded already? You know, there's this little point of disconnect here, and we'll get more into that in the chapter, but we're already thrown into two types of conflicts here, which we didn't really see any kind of disconnect between them that much in The Phantom Menace. But this kind of sets the tone for the chapter and perhaps the book where maybe not all is well between the two of the characters. Yeah, so like I think he mentions that Obi-Wan was 17 in the events of this, right? So it makes me laugh too because at one point he's like, he's tired already at my age. I was able to do so much <laughs> more than this, but we're different. And he makes that abundantly clear over and over in the book. Where it's, you know, he has to remind himself that him and Obi-Wan are completely different. Which is another thing that Claudia touches upon when she's talking about, you know, how Obi-Wan is very by the book. Yeah. And Qui-Gon is very, like you said, unorthodox. And, you know, he's big into meditation and patience. And we'll dive more into that once we get to, like, the chapter 3 portion yeah. of this. But, yeah. I love this book so much. <laughs> Pages in, we're already introduced to just a lot of different kinds of conflicts, but also, you know, we know that the characters we're reading about here are true to how we know them, albeit briefly from The Phantom Menace. So they are chased into, or they take the left into the 
Spice Hookah Den. And, you know, I, I wrote in my notes here, th this is where the fun begins. <laughs> I love this scene here where they jump onto different band platforms and the, the den is full of huts and criminals, you know, they're just high off of some Spice Hookah. And I love this quote here. Most of the day's group hardly seem to notice the two Jedi jump onto the platforms, which is pretty hilarious considering that before they entered the room, they activated their lightsabers, and all of a sudden, two armed Jedi Knights just jump into the room, and they're just not even noticing, <laughs> because they're just so far gone. And so the human guards that are chasing Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are going to emerge from this doorway, and Qui-Gon yells for Obi-Wan to handle that door. And then we get into this beautifully written passage where Qui-Gon, he's on his own band platform, he's engaging with some, I think, Gamorrean guards here. And it's this beautifully written passage where, quote, amid the fray, he called upon the deep quietness within, the soul of the universe that always listened, always answered. Without consciously thinking or aiming, Qui-Gon brought his lightsaber up, over, aside, blocking every blaster bolt. They fired faster, but it made no difference. He could sense each shot before it happened. And I love this amazing insight we get into Qui-Gon's relationship with the force and you know how he's using it amidst a battle here where he's being fired upon and it's just this effortless connection with the force where he's just able to deflect everything and anything that's being shot at him i'm glad you brought up that passage because i was going to bring it up too it's <laughs> it's one of my favorite in the entire book because it's so just seamlessly beautifully written it's almost like the most perfect way to describe his relationship with the force it's mm. he lets it consume him completely vulnerable or not i'm gonna let the force drive me and not only drive me but drive all of the events that are going to take place here and now and yep. in the future but another thing that we see over and over again in this book is qui-gon reminding himself and then you kind of see obi-wan starting to do it later where there is no past there is no future only the present yeah and i i think that paired with this exquisite writing at its finest, I really do enjoy that excerpt about Qui-Gon because he's... We don't get to see a lot of action with him as well in the movies. Of course, yeah. you have your duels with Darth Maul. You see him take out a couple battle droids and stuff. But kind of just envisioning a little bit of a younger Qui-Gon. Just letting the Force kind of ride with him. And I, I think it's beautiful. I, I don't yeah. know how else to describe it. It's beautiful. That's the best way to describe it, I think. You know, in the opening scenes of The Phantom Menace, even, we hear him tell Obi-Wan to be mindful of the living force. And here, this is exactly what he's doing. In the middle of a fight, he's just able to let it, like you're saying, to let it consume him and to guide his actions. Yeah, same thing, right, with Darth Maul, right? Like, when he was yeah. fighting Darth Maul, he was like, all right, I'm just going to take a second to sit here and meditate <laughs> in the is... middle of a fight. It's like, dude... You got some large cojones to be, to just be like, okay, hold on one second. I'm just gonna chill for a second. Just wait. let me <laughs> let me just sit down for a moment and meditate. Like, yeah, that's his character. That's what he does. It's all about whatever the force wants. Exactly, and we don't see quite the same kind of concentration from Obi-Wan here, where Qui-Gon's noticing that his actions are a little bit more panicked in the moment in the fight. He's still reacting well. Qui-Gon makes a note that his reactions are top-notch. But here, Obi-Wan took Qui-Gon's instructions, quote, handle that door, differently than Qui-Gon had intended, where Obi-Wan jumps down to the door, and instead of handling the guards at the door like Qui-Gon wanted him to, he just straight up stabs the door controls, <laughs> which also control the band platforms. So all of a sudden, everything is thrown into chaos where, you know, Qui-Gon 
had you know some steady balance he's dictating the fight pretty well and then everything is thrown out of loop where the band platforms are now you know skewed and, and falling every which way and he lets obi-wan know he yells at obi-wan that he meant you know to take care of the guards and i'm wondering can we fault obi-wan here where you know qui-gon is flustered that he took handle the door literally which could speak to the divide in their philosophies where obi-wan it seems is more of like a face value perspective where qui-gon is more symbolic more abstract regardless of that we see any kind of minimal tension from him being annoyed at obi-wan already being tired to now obi-wan has thrown the flow of this fight completely out of whack but can we fault obi-wan here i actually don't think we can fault either of them i think it's okay. it's Again, it's it's they're such different characters, and I actually you kind of just touched on this. I think this does again represent their characters beautifully, right? You have Qui Gon who's in a hectic situation, but he's staying in his meditative state. He's doing what needs to be done. He's letting the Force dictate the actions, and all he's doing is ask his Padawan to handle the guards <laughs> at the door. But instead of saying handle the guards at the door, he says handle the door. Yeah. So Qui-Gon is so by the or Qui-Gon uh, Obi-Wan is so by the book. He's like, "Okay, I'm going to go destroy this door <laughs> because that's what he wanted me to do." I think there's no fault. I think it's just a miscommunication and it's something they talk about later on, but it represents who they are as a character. Like it, it's so silly because it's a weird hectic battle and a door control, but hey, <laughs> whatever I mean, when works. I, <laughs> when I read that for the first time, I was confused at Qui-Gon being annoyed because I took it as Obi-Wan did, where I'm like, he took care of the door. That's exactly what you asked him to. And then Qui-Gon clarified what he had meant. And I was like, oh, okay, I see. I can see where Obi-Wan was coming from, but I can also see where Qui-Gon is coming from. And we'll speak more to that disconnect in the aftermath of it. But this is you know, clearly some bigger consequences than Obi-Wan just being a little fatigued here because you know, the situation is now totally turned on its head where they have to audible. They went from being kind of in relative control of the situation to now Qui-Gon is trying to hang on for dear life to this band platform, and he yells for Obi-Wan to find them a ship. And so Obi-Wan runs out of the room, and Qui-Gon, we have this, you know, a great scene from him where he's leaping from one platform to the next. He's jumping over guards, and he does this, you know, really acrobatic move where he jumps across some platforms to land behind Wando the Hut, which is the, you know, the head hut of this compound, right behind him. And he holds him, you know, very much like Mace Windu held Django at a uh, lightsaber point. He holds his lightsaber to Wanbo's neck. And I can imagine him thinking, you know, this party's over. And the listeners are probably wondering, what is he going on about here? Hey guys, this is Editing Andrew. I know, I'm just as confused as you are about what past Andrew's saying here. You know, one second he's talking about Wando the Hut, the next second he's talking about Wombo the Hut. Which one is it, Past Andrew? Listeners, this might just be me, but I think Past Andrew might be hitting up the Spice Hookah Dens a little bit too much, so I'm here to correct his mistakes. He did get it right in the end there. It is, in fact, Wombo the Hut. So, let's get back to the show. And I love this quote here just about the spice addicts there where it's, it says, quote, most of the spice addicts sat up finally interested in what was going on, which is just, it took two Jedi appearing, lightsabers ignited, jumping from platforms. I think a Gamorrean lost his arm and, you know, blaster fires everywhere. And that's when they finally sit up and like, oh, something interesting is happening when their boss is held at lightsaber points. So I thought those, you know, some comical moments amidst the chaos of the scene. Oh, absolutely. I love the descriptions of like what's going on. And I have to speak to her writing again because the visuals that she's able to create in your brain from her writing 
So good. I, it's so vivid, right? There's not a, a beat that she misses. Everything that she writes, I can visualize in my head extremely vivid. But also, let's talk about Wombo. <laughs> That is the best name for a hut. That's my favorite hut name. It is name. great. <laughs> Wombo? Jabba or Wombo, I think. <laughs> I mean, Jabba's classic, but Wombo, man, I don't know. There's just... That is a hut just, name. <laughs> it's a very hut name, and it's better than Zero, so... Yeah, yeah, I was never a fan of that. <laughs> Zero is the only hut that I'm kind of like, ugh. Do better. <laughs> but Wombo's a great hut name. I had to mention yeah. that. And speaking of Wombo, he's asking Qui-Gon... Since when did the Jedi take hostages? And then we get this very interesting insight into these internal thoughts of Qui-Gon. And I'm just going to read a bit from this passage here. And I quote, It wasn't the kind of thing Jedi usually did. Not the kind of maneuver Qui-Gon liked to employ. Definitely not something the Jedi Council would be glad to hear about when he and Obi-Wan returned to Coruscant. But Qui-Gon tailored his tactics to his opponents. Against the Huts, whose massive wealth had been derived solely through the misery of other beings, he felt free to do whatever it took to survive. And so we've seen a little bit of disconnect from Qui-Gon to Obi-Wan. Here we get a little bit more about his disconnect with the methods of the Jedi, the traditional methods of the Council here. As much as we also see a glimpse into Qui-Gon's compassion here, and he knows that the Huts, they get where they are in society in their ranks, at the expense of others, at the misery of others, like he's saying, like he's thinking. And because of that, he doesn't mind taking these extra steps, even if it means taking a hostage, which, you know, Wanbo could be correct here, since when did the Jedi do that? It's not really something we think of Jedi doing. I think this speaks really greatly to Qui-Gon's distaste for injustice, and also to his unorthodox approach, where he's almost taking this personally here, where he knows what the Hutt's and their status stands for. He knows how they got there, and he is not, in this case, he doesn't mind taking some extra steps to do whatever is necessary in the moment. It's another thing that Qui-Gon is, for me, makes him such a standout character. It's the amount of unorthodoxy really is in comparison yeah. to the rest of the council. It lines up perfectly with what we know of the character. And another thing that I, I would really like to touch on too, and I think you can see so much more of Dooku in Qui-Gon than people realize because, of course, Dooku goes, you know, quote-unquote evil. I don't know if he was fully evil or not ever, but it makes you really see, like, Dooku wasn't that fond of the Jedi Council either. Qui-Gon will do whatever he feels is right regardless of the Council. And that's where the problems lie with him and Obi-Wan, where there's, there's such a big disconnect there. Because they're, they're seeing things in a completely different way. So a lot of times throughout the book, you're going to hear, you know, Qui-Gon talk about, am I, am I really the right master for Obi-Wan? Yeah. Because he's completely different. He should be like Yoda, like someone who is just by the book at all times. And Qui-Gon's not about that. When I think of Qui-Gon, I think of at any means necessary. He's yeah. going to do whatever he needs to do in that particular moment, in that particular situation with those very specific people. And the instance with Wombo is a great example of that. Yeah, I do think whatever it takes to a point, we see Dooku kind of stretch that point, you know, in Dark Disciple, he had a like a refugee ship 
destroyed, innocent lives are taken there. I, I, I do think that Qui-Gon is similar to a point, but I think you're right, where he doesn't kill Wanbo, he just holds him hostage. That alone shows us that he has the book in his hands. He, you know, he has the Jedi book in his hands and he's oh, yeah, willing he knows to it. toss it to the side if you know. You know, it's a fine line between his moral code, because he does have a moral code, clearly we see that, and also just kind of stretching the line in whatever ways to fit the situation. And here, you know, we can't blame him. We know the huts are scumbags. So, you know, we can see why he's feeling the way that he does, um, which I think is very interesting and really spot on so far. But, and I think we're going to say this over and over and over again, spot on by Claudia Gray here, where she's capturing his character, who we know only minimally of, but from what we do know about him, she's getting this spot on, which I love. So, yeah, um, it's, it's, perfect and um this situation again just proves that qui-gon does not serve the jedi qui-gon does not serve the jedi council qui-gon serves the force that's a great point i think ultimately he lets the force govern him clearly more than he lets the jedi council's code govern him govern correct him. so yeah i think that's a great point and so as the scene progresses he's on Wombo's platform and he's controlling the platform to to make it descend through like an opening in the floor because the platform is designed to travel between levels as to limit Wombo's actually moving which I thought is very on point <laughs> being a hut he doesn't you know <laughs> doesn't need to move much or avoids movement or any kind of physical activity wherever he can and so he lowers the platform that they're on still holding Wombo at lightsaber point into this hangar where he sees Obi-Wan surrounded and joined by uh, Wanbo's Major Domo, Thurible. And so they realize they have each other's boss and student hostage, respectively, and so they agree to negotiate. So in the next scene of this chapter, we're in Thurible's office, where, you know, we, we come from a very action-packed scene, lightsabers, blasters, hostage situation, Obi-Wan surrounded, and the next scene opens with Thurible and Qui-Gon drinking tea together, <laughs> which... It's like a just great change of pace. Doesn't that remind you of Obi-Wan 2 in the Clone Wars movie? Where he's like, I'm here to surrender. Let's get a drink. And they sit there and <laughs> Obi-Wan's sipping his tea. Learn that from Qui-Gon. Clearly he takes a page out of Qui-Gon's book here. I think the older that Obi-Wan gets, the more that you can see Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. But it's still not that one-to-one. He's, he's still, still more of he's yeah. still more of a by-the-book kind of guy. But, you know, we know that later on... Obi-Wan lets things slide. We learn from season seven yeah. of Clone Wars that he obviously knows of Padme yeah. and Anakin's relationship in some fashion. It's above what it's supposed to be yeah. in terms of the Jedi code. And I think the younger Obi-Wan might have reported that. Oh, for sure. Hands down. He would have He would have right. been <laughs> Council's pet, you know? <laughs> the older Obi-Wan, I think, is more... Uh, he lets his feelings be a little bit more accessible than for sure the younger version of himself for sure that's a great point he does become closer to the image of qui-gon not quite but he does become more lax as he gets older, yeah they're so. definitely still different characters their morals are still a little bit different their codes are different but you can definitely see parts of qui-gon's teaching in obi-wan the older he gets for sure and so they're sharing tea qui-gon and thurible are sharing some tea and he's shifting the topic to the original reason that he and Obi-Wan were sent there to investigate these shipments that he figured that the Huts were stealing. And Thurible, he's smart. Qui-Gon is gaining that much from the interaction where, you know, Wanbo on paper is the leader of this crime group. But in actuality, it's Thurible who's actually the brains behind the organization here. And so he knows that Thurible, even though he doesn't admit to them stealing these shipments, he knows that if they don't stop... 
the Republic is going to intervene with some force. And Qui-Gon knows, you know, we have, we have these thoughts from him, which become pretty, you know, pretty cynical, pretty like a, a darker tone here, where he knows that this cycle, even if they did intervene with force, the cycle would just repeat, where the huts would stop for a time, the Republic would leave or lessen their presence, it would start over and over and over again, it would just be the cycle of just bloodshed. And this chapter, it ends with this jaded note from Qui-Gon, where he used to think that great transformational change was possible, but, quote, time had taught him better. And you know, it's kind of kind of a sobering note where, although the mission didn't go as they wanted, you know, he knows that for a time, Thurible and this, this hut syndicate are going to stop, but it's just going to happen over and over and over again in time. And it ends on this jaded note from Qui-Gon where, you know, he knows that as much as he wants to create change in the universe, it's ultimately things are out of his control. It was an interesting scene. It, it caught Thurible off guard with the change of tone. And it just speaks to, yeah, this more jaded, more cynical side of Qui-Gon, uh, which I thought was pretty powerful. Yeah, I think, you know, at some point he kind of got hit with the dose of reality and was like, I can't, I can't expect that us as the Jedi faction or the Jedi group or cult or whatever you want to call them can change the galaxy forever. It's never going to happen. And he talks about how, you know, let's say that the the Republic does show up and they use force and now, you know, Wombo's dead. And then what's going to happen is a new crime group is just yeah. going to do the same exact thing. And it's going to be, you know, an endless cycle, rinse and repeat over and over for generations and generations. He comes to the realization that the force obviously wants this to continue happening. So I'm not going to try to stop it. I'm just trying to get me and my Padawan out of here. Yeah. And yeah, it is a different side of Qui-Gon that I think definitely caught uh oh boy off guard but yeah. i can I, I always mess up pronouncing his name which is why i'm not saying it oh i had no clue how to pronounce it i'm just yeah. going off thermal, of thermal 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 it sounds like terrible <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know but uh you get what i'm saying yeah, yeah. i mean he got thrown off by qui-gon's approach and i think as a reader you're kind of like oh well, this fits perfectly, but I didn't imagine him saying that. Yeah, we see him willing to act in these situations on compassion. He knows that he wants to make things right, where as much as freeing Anakin and trying to free Shmi in The Phantom Menace and here knowing that the huts are where they are at the expense and misery of others, he knows that he wants to try to do something about it. But when it comes to these backroom talks where he's face-to-face -face with the leader here, he just knows that there's only so much that he and the Jedi can do before it's just up to the force, up to the, the way the universe works, the way the galaxy works. So, and that is how chapter one ends. You know, we got a lot of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, a lot of their inner workings here. It, it was in Qui-Gon's point of view, which I thought was very fascinating, especially with that little passage of him and his relationship with the force. Before we move on to chapter two, do you have any closing thoughts on this chapter as a whole? I just think it's a great intro to the book. It's one of my favorite intros to a Star Wars book. You learn a lot, but it's also a lot of what you expect. So yeah. I expected to learn more about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan's relationship, and I did. I expected them to be completely different, and they are. <laughs> they are. <laughs> I expected Qui-Gon to be, you know, the I am one with the Force and the Force with, is with me kind of guy. <laughs> and Obi-Wan be like... Yes, Master, I'm going to do whatever you say, and I'm going to do it by the book. Yes, Master, and that's exactly how they were. And yeah. I think everything just kind of fit perfectly, but Chapter 2 gets interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm actually kind of excited to talk about Chapter 2, 
because yeah, sure. originally when my first read through of this, I did not understand why we were reading what we were reading. Yeah. You know, I was like, huh? But as you dive in later, well, we'll get into I'll let that. you take, yeah, I'll let you take it away now. Yeah, we'll get into it. I'll read my summary for chapter two and then we'll dive right into it. Gemstone thieves Rahara Wick and Pax Marifer leave Alderaan with a new haul of loot. Although the two have seen much success in their recent gemstone runs, Rahara reflects on how things have grown awkward between the two of them, as she has grown increasingly frustrated with Pax's lack of understanding. Pax sees an opportunity to break the rut they've sunk into and suggests they set their sights on a riskier but more valuable prize, Kyber Crystals. Returning to Coruscant, Qui-Gon reflects on his relationship with Obi-Wan. Since the beginning of their partnership, he feels they have been out of sync. The mishaps in their mission on Teth have reignited his feelings of a stark disconnect between himself and his apprentice. On the planet Pijal, Rail Avaros celebrates winning a Varactyl race at a local pub. However, festivities are interrupted when they learn that a nearby warehouse was set ablaze. Chapter 2. We are, right off the bat, introduced to two side characters in this story. You know, this obviously is not going to all be about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. I'm always a little skeptical when I get to these points in books, you know, where I know I'm here for Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. Do I really want the story of Rahara and Pax? So initially, you know, we're all thrown off a little bit, but we're introduced to two seemingly pretty complex characters. Before we dive into them, do you have any thoughts on this chapter as a whole? Yeah, before we dive in. So it's kind of diving into them at the same time about <laughs> this chapter, but is this not a great parallel to Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan's relationship? About to say the same thing. <laughs> it's it's the exact same thing. I mean, obviously it's Jedi and it's, you know, thieves essentially, but I genuinely enjoy this because it's yeah, it's completely different characters. You don't know who Rahara and Pax are in the beginning. You're like, who are these people? Why do we care? Is this Qui- No, this isn't Qui-Gon. <laughs> yeah, you end up caring because it is Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. It's not the, the characters are not the same, but the relationships are very, very similar where there's a big disconnect, right? Just like Qui-Gon for and sure. Obi-Wan. For sure. And it's, you know, they're not Jedi, they're thieves, but they have their issues. And it it's almost like you never stopped reading the relationship of Qui-Gon and yeah. Obi-Wan. So this kept you entertained the entire time, anytime they came up in the story. The, uh, how do you say this one's name? You did it good. Rail? Rail uh, Avaros? Yeah, Rail Avaros, yeah. Avaros, yeah. So his portion of the chapter was like, okay, this could get interesting. The first read-through, of course. Yeah. But uh, initially I was like, why do I care about this guy? It's just or, having some drinks at a pub. What's, what's going on here? Yeah, I'm confused, but... Yeah, overall though, I think I think the chapter it grows on you, especially after you finish reading the book. Go back and read it a second time, you're gonna be like, "This is Qui Gon and Obi Wan." You know, just in, if they were gemstone thieves, this is who they would be. <laughs> this is exactly who they would be. And I'm glad you touched on their similarities because you're right. Just as much as we saw this disconnect between Qui Gon and Obi Wan, frustration between the two of them, Pax and Rahara, it's the same. There's frustration here, which I think it stems from an interesting point where. You know, we're getting this little bit of backstory of Rahara thinking about, you know, why they're so different. And we learn, you know, that she comes from kind of like a, a rougher upbringing. Uh, we don't really get a lot on that background, but, you know, she thinks that, you know, she had a rough childhood while Pax was raised 
by protocol droids. Isn't th- when I read that like three PO units basically at one point I think they said three PO. Uh, yeah, yeah. The three PO unit that raised him, and I was like, okay, this is getting it's like crazy. What? Yeah, <laughs> I I just like imagined. I don't know. I envisioned like C three PO from the Phantom Menace like taking care of like a four year old Anakin. And I was like, this is weird, man. This is it. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking to myself, you know, if he's raised by 3PO units, if he's raised by protocol droids, what do language lessons look like? Does he have to learn all 6 million plus languages? How do you fit that into the day? What does the academic schedule look like? I was so many questions. I'd never heard about someone, a human, because they are both human, a human being raised from childhood by protocol droids i was thrown off i thought that was hilarious and really strange i loved it i didn't even think about the language thing (laughs) oh man you just opened up a bag of worms yeah (laughs) i'm gonna have to tweet at claudia gray later and ask her it's like what is it what does that look like i need to know but we get some some hints of some past trauma for rahara where you know she's thinking that she prefers this life you know they're they're not big thieves they're not you know in this hut crime syndicate they are just simple gemstone thieves and she doesn't mind that being overlooked by society they kind of are able to go about their business you know they just got a haul from alderaan just get in out no one blinks an eye they're doing their job she likes this lifestyle compared to her childhood where quote she'd spent her childhood being monitored being controlled rahara would never allow that to happen again and that's all really we're given about that at this point but we're thrown this curveball here where those aren't really the terms that we would think about when we think of it of a childhood right where you know even if she had like a rough childhood you know like a han solo type deal where you know she's doing her own thing being monitored and being controlled those are two buzzwords there that kind of they raise some question marks for me and you know we're not given more on it at this point but it's just thrown in there hopefully to be expanded on in in later chapters but i thought that was that was interesting you know compared to pax who had a very you know (laughs) whatever a simple lifestyle being raised by protocol droids is to something underneath the surface here for rahara which i thought was interesting yeah and it, it again highlights their differences kind of right off the rip right it definitely highlights that from their entire lives their lives started different their upbringing started differently and um, the thing with Rahara, too, is I could totally understand and sympathize with after you learn about her background and she's just like, I want to keep flying under the radar. Yeah. We don't know because, you know, we might not have been raised the way she was raised, but maybe you would react the same if you did. Yeah. You know, I, I like to call things um, relatable, even if I don't relate to it, because I try to envision myself in that person's situation And then I say, how would I feel in that situation? Therefore, making it relatable because now I can understand where they're coming from. Anyway. And we can see where her frustration with Pax arises from because being raised by droids, he's not big on emotion or just even standard human interactions. He is very awkward. There are some just cringe moments in conversation from him. So we can see why she would be generally frustrated with, you know, she's not able to connect with him the way that, she would want you know especially if she has these past traumas she's not able to open up to him because as far as what we see on the surface that pax is projecting he's just not even offering an opportunity for that connection you know where he he doesn't seem to understand emotion the way that rahara does so we can see you know the roots of that frustration so 
In this next scene of the chapter, Rahara goes down to the cargo hold and she's sorting through their gemstone hall. And Pax had set up this kind of uh, scanner blocking energy field to protect their hall. So it was still up and we, you know, Rahara is practicing trying to deactivate it and remove gemstones from it before it reactivates pretty much as in as quickly of a window as possible. Uh, just to, you know, brush up on her skills. And so Pax shows up behind her and tells her that, you know, he thought that she would have gotten it down by now because, you know, he's asking, what are you doing? And she's saying, you know, I'm practicing. And, you know, he says, uh, quote, you know, we've made what is known as a clean getaway. You can turn the field off. I would have thought you would have had it by now. And this was very similar. You were speaking about parallels between Qui-Gon, Obi-Wan, and yep. Pax and Rahara. This is very similar to when Qui-Gon was thinking that Obi-Wan should have gotten battle meditation down by now. Why didn't he? And same exact thing. Exactly. Brilliant little point of parallel there where it's like, this is the same. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Like, I love the connective tissue between these two different duos that have nothing to do with each other at this particular moment. I mean, who could have written that any better? Not me. <laughs> I'm, I'm just Team Claudia Gray today, and I'm going to be very repetitive, as I'm sure I have been for the last however long we've been recording but you just kind of have to give credit where credit's due in her her writing. And I mean, we're only on the second chapter. If we're able to talk for this long about two chapters of a book. That's when you know it's good. <laughs> it's very, very good. And the again, the parallels between the, the two duos are, I don't know who could have written it better. Yeah, for sure. And we see some, maybe some intelligence from Pax here where he notices that the situation is a little bit awkward. You know, he pretty much just called out Rahara there and he changes the subject to offer the suggestion why don't we go hunting for kyber crystals instead of just the usual gemstones? Which I, when I read that, I was like, oh, snap. So they're going to, you know, they're going to steal some kyber crystals and they know how important those are to the Jedi. So we're wondering if there's going to be some interaction between them and some Jedi now that they're literally going to steal a valuable, valuable resource to the Jedi Order as a whole. So that was pretty cool. A uh, pretty cool way to end their scene together. In the next scene of the chapter, we're in Qui-Gon's point of view. He and Obi-Wan are on the way back to Coruscant, and there's this inner conflict that Qui-Gon is experiencing. And you had touched on this earlier. He feels like Obi-Wan deserves a better master, and that he's been really mindful of this disconnect between him ever since the start. And you know, he's reflecting that he had taken Obi-Wan on as apprentice at the age of 13, which, imagine how difficult that must be. You know, we know how angsty people can be at 13. I don't care if they're a Jedi or not. Props to Qui-Gon for making that happen, where it's like you have their disconnect from personalities either way. Layer on top of that, the fact that Obi-Wan is, Qui-Gon thinks about just like emotion swings and all that. Layer that on top of the disconnect already present. Mad respect for Qui-Gon. Could you imagine adopting, basically, like a 13-year-old boy? That would be so tough. <laughs> and having to train them in the ways of life, and they're already, like, a mean little shit? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh my god. swings and, and completely, just, like, And completely <laughs> different from you, and you have two different philosophies on life itself. <laughs> Oh my, huge props to Qui-Gon. <laughs> We're already understanding how good of a master he is where, you know, they've made it this far, starting off when Obi-Wan is an angsty teen. I just I thought that was, uh, you know, some, some hats off to Qui-Gon. He's also thinking about his former master, Dooku, Count Dooku. We, we learned about that previously in Star Wars where, you know, Dooku was Qui-Gon's teacher. 
And we learn here that it's from Dooku that he became interested in prophecies, and it's with Dooku that he shared this reluctance to think of the Council as being infallible, to be skeptical of them in some extent. Which, like you're saying, like you've said, it's the total opposite of Obi-Wan. And it's because of this opposite Ness. I don't even know if that's a word, but in, in their nature that there's always they've always been out of sync. And I just I love that brief little tribute to his relationship with Dooku in that little section where it's from Dooku that he is the way that he is. And we've always wondered how Dooku could have just been so different from Yoda, you know, Yoda being Dooku's master, but now we're seeing how similar Qui-Gon and, and Dooku are. I thought that was a pretty fascinating little blurb right there. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, another good book to dive into also is Dooku Jedi Lost. That gives a, a, a lot of good insight on Dooku as well. But yeah, I love I love that they mentioned Dooku in the book because I think Dooku is a severely overlooked character. I think he had a bigger impact than most people think. I understand people know, okay, he was the Sith Apprentice, Yes, he was, you know, the leader of the Separatists army and he was, you know, from a very rich planet and he he himself was very, 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 cannot express this enough, very wealthy. He was nobility. <laughs> right. I mean, he was basically royalty, like the next yep. tier under that, right? So he plays a big role in qui like, you know, like he mentions, it's Dooku that puts him into into the loop with the whole studying prophecies and yep. learning more about the force itself instead of learning about what the Jedi Council wants you to know. Which there could be value in that, which, you know, that's not entirely a wrong approach, which I always think is very fascinating. To me, there's three characters, things run in threes, right? You have Anakin, Dooku, and Qui-Gon are all very similar in their philosophies. Yeah. And the way they are now, of course, Anakin is way different than both of them just because he's kind of like, uh, let's just do some action now and think about it later, <laughs> you know, F to consequences. But the other three on the opposite of that, you have Yoda, Mace Windu, and um, Obi-Wan. Obi yeah. And all of them are complete parallels of one another, but they all had to get along at some point. Yeah. You know, and they were all intertwined at some point. So now we have increased the relationship meter from two to six. Yeah. <laughs> right? It puts such a great spin on relationships you already thought you knew. You didn't know. You didn't, you didn't know, know yep. enough. <laughs> or you did know, but no one, you know, someone as masterful as Claudia Gray wasn't there to tell you. Basically yep. tell you without it directly telling you, this is what the deal is. This is how these relationships have all affected the entire events of Star Wars. It's all connected. Just it like is. the Force, you know? It's all connected. So. Oh man, that was beautiful. But as the scene closes out, we're in the cockpit and Obi-Wan is apologizing to Qui-Gon for misunderstanding his instructions. And I find it really fascinating as the scene is closing to find that Qui-Gon is more disappointed and ashamed of himself rather than with Obi-Wan, where any other master might have been frustrated with their apprentice. You know, why isn't he getting what I'm trying to teach? You know, why is he being this way? Qui-Gon, he's seeing it as him failing Obi-Wan rather than Obi-Wan failing him, which speaks so well to Qui-Gon's character, where he's doing everything possible to see how this is his fault. He's not faulting young Obi-Wan here. He's more disappointed in himself. And you can see Obi-Wan recognize that Qui-Gon is blaming himself and that's something Obi-Wan will use later you know against Anakin he's you know I have failed you yeah you know wow. he, he apologizes yep. I have failed you yep 
Everything that Anakin did wrong, is it really Obi-Wan's fault? No. Things that Obi-Wan does wrong, was it Qui-Gon's fault? No. But the Master apologizes because they feel they have failed their Master. So another beautiful connection right That's there. so good. I love that connection. <laughs> so in the final scene of this chapter, we're taken to the planet Pijal into the perspective of Rael Avaros. And he's in the middle of a Veractyl race. And I wasn't sure initially what creature the Veractyl was. And so I looked it up and they're the creature that Obi-Wan rode in, in Utapau in Revenge of the Sith, which I thought was so cool. And just how cool is Star Wars where you have pod racing? Now there's Veractyl racing. This is amazing. <laughs> so um, Rail, he, he wins the race and he's off to the pub to celebrate with the rest of the participants there. And we're gathering that he's this gruff guy. You know, he's, he's kind of carefree. He's wanting to live his life to the fullest. And so when he enters the pub, he's checking out the hostess. And one of his friends comments, you know, oh, so you guys are back on again. And so we're gathering that he's very, uh, you know, he, live how you will, have some fun kind of guy. And so he's heading over to the hostess and he's stopped by this uh, patron. He's stopped by a patron who tries to get with the hostess instead. And, you know, the hostess Selby is turning him down and the guy tries to pick a fight with Rail and Rail all of a sudden draws a lightsaber. And I know that we were told in the description of this book that Jedi Rail Avaros, we know that he's a Jedi. The whole build-up to his character in this scene, racing on Veractyls, he's had a fling with a hostess, you know, he's just like, live life to the fullest as long as I'm having fun, and then we're reminded he is a Jedi, and I just would not have expected that going into this chapter, you know, it's just so easy to forget with how we're introduced to his character. And then we also learn that he's Lord Regent of Pijal, because the princess is too young, so until she's old enough, he's in charge. It's like we know that Qui-Gon is unorthodox. Rail is that to the next level. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's like a magnified version of Qui-Gon times a thousand. You know, it's almost like I don't know how to put this without it being weird. But here we go. It's like if Qui-Gon and Anakin had offspring, I feel like Rail would be pretty. <laughs> you know, that's a pretty good description of how I would see that happening. <laughs> it's that's just true. yeah. You know, there, there's actually not that much to say about this other than pretty much what you've already covered the build-up to the character you don't you kind of forget he's a jedi and then out of nowhere you're like oh yeah this dude's crazy it's so unexpected you know if you were to forget the description of the book he just did not seem like he was a jedi it's just interesting where we have kind of like this spectrum of jedi through these first couple of chapters where we have obi-wan on one side where he's very by the book qui-gon more to the middle where he respects the wishes of the council also takes some liberties as well and then you have rail on the complete other side like kind of the anti-obi-wan who is just nothing you would expect from a jedi at least from what we're given here i just thought that was really just fascinating unexpected it's like a twist in of itself in its own way and the scene ends where, you know, the festivities are cut short when on the hollow screen, we're gathering that not all is well on Pijal. There's a warehouse that had been set ablaze. It's in flames. And from Rail's thoughts, we gather that there's some kind of opposition group on Pijal, maybe led by this name. He says, Halin Azuka. We're just given that name, nothing else. So clearly not all is well as the chapter ends. So a little brief introduction into Rail. We're introduced to the presence of some kind of conflict on Pijal. Clearly, there's something amiss here, but that's it for that scene. 
and for chapter two. Do you have any closing thoughts on this chapter after we've discussed all the details? Uh, no, I think I think actually we've gotten everything kind of covered with two. Uh, I think three three starts to get a little bit more exciting as well. So I'm I'm just kind of ready to talk about chapter three. Okay, let's let's talk about it after I get into my summary here, and then we can dive right in. Let's do it. In the cockpit of their shuttle, Obi Wan contemplates his relationship with Qui Gon. Although he feels ashamed for misinterpreting Qui-Gon's instructions on Teth, he feels growing irritation and frustration with his master's unorthodox style. Although he prefers more rule-governed behavior, especially in terms of the Jedi Council's wishes, Obi-Wan admits to himself that perhaps there was something yet to learn from Qui-Gon's rogue methods. Rahara and Pax come out of hyperspace to orbit the planet Pijal and its nearby moon, where Pax had discovered a large source of kyber crystals. However, Rahara becomes very unsettled to find a large presence of Zerka Corporation ships around the planet. Noticing Rahara's distress, Pax offers to turn the ship around, but Rahara chooses to go on with the mission, and the two of them continue onward to Pijal's moon. This is a relatively short chapter compared to the first two that we have discussed. I'll just open the floor to you on any general thoughts of this chapter before we get into the details. So this one's extremely short, but I actually found it quite satisfying because you have, again, the two duos here are running into conflicts together where you have Obi-Wan is over here really concerned about his relationship with Qui-Gon. But now you have... With the situation with Pax and Rahara, they're going into some danger. And yeah, it's not it's not the same like emotional turmoil that's going on, but it's still running parallel to where both duos are going through some stuff at the same time. I enjoy this type of this style of storytelling. You know, one one story relates to the other story, so when you're going back and forth, you don't feel so disconnected when you go back to the first one. You kind of feel like you picked up right where you left off. So that's that's something I enjoy about this back and forth that's a great point just because usually in some books that i've read when we get kind of like the switch from you know the main characters to like the side quest so to speak sometimes there is that kind of jolt where it's just totally different setting different motivations but here like you're saying and that's such a good point where it's not exactly the same situation but the tensions in some ways root from similar places where it's kind of it, it makes it a smoother transition easier for the reader to stomach where you know we're not you know we don't have that jolt where it's like oh this is nothing like what we were talking about with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan you're right where it's Claudia makes it easier for the reading experience that way which I think is great and reading this book again I caught on to those similarities where the first time around I wasn't as aware of how you know the tensions are mirrored in a way paralleled in kind of a way so that's a a really great point and I like how we're getting this take on the tension between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan from either perspective from Qui-Gon's in the previous chapter now we're in Obi-Wan's point of view where he's experiencing the same kind of conflict he is ashamed and disappointed in himself but we see more of a willingness from him here to deflect that onto Qui-Gon, where Qui-Gon is very much about, I'm going to blame myself here. This is something that I'm doing wrong. He needs a better master. Obi-Wan is, and maybe we can't fault him because he's young, still learning. It's easier for him to say, Qui-Gon's not doing this right. You know, I could be better if Qui-Gon wasn't so unorthodox. Yeah, definitely. I think there was a point in here I'm trying to get my reference. This quote right here, it's it's at the end of the portion with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. But 
when Obi-Wan's talking about, you know, the methods that Qui-Gon uses. And he says, most frustrating of all, Qui-Gon's methods worked most of the time. Whatever changeable madness he steered by, it steered him well. So that is, again, powerful. The next thing, it just says, um, you know, there's something important about being a Jedi that Obi-Wan didn't yet understand. So it's, it's Obi-Wan admitting, like, yeah, he's not doing things by the book ever, but it's working for him. It's working. So maybe there is something to be learned here. Maybe there is something I can take away from my master. Maybe it shouldn't always be all by the book. And I think, again, you know, the older that Obi-Wan gets, the more you see, like, when things change around him, he's willing to adapt instead of just sticking by the book. He definitely sticks more to the book than Qui-Gon ever does. <laughs> but you do see the willingness in Obi-Wan to change and to adapt. And I like that you see the turmoil in him, in him thinking about, well, maybe... Maybe I'm not right. Because, of course, like, as a as a teenager, you always think you're right. Yeah. And that's another thing. Yeah. This is extremely relatable because I know when I was, you know, ages 14 to 18, no one could tell me anything. I was always right. And I think that's how most teenagers are. They're excited to grow up and do their own thing. And, you know, they feel that they have enough of a grasp on life. And for their entire lives, people are telling them, basically, you don't know shit about life yet. <laughs> Trust me and listen to me. And as a teenager, you're like, no, you don't know what I'm going through as a teenager. But really, you do because they have been there before. So yeah. I think that the Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan dynamic and is specifically Obi-Wan's inner turmoil with himself and with Qui-Gon is extremely relatable and... It's one of my favorite parts of this entire book. I think so too, because it's it's something new to us in a way, where in The Phantom Menace, we saw them pretty much work as a seamless unit. There was some frustration at Obi-Wan at Qui-Gon, and why are you taking this kid along with us? But he compared Anakin to Jar Jar. He said, why are you taking, an, uh, why are you taking another useless uh, life form? <laughs> referring to the first one being great roast terrible from oh my oh my gosh it's horrible no there yeah there was definitely still some turmoil in the phantom menace but after reading this i think yeah yeah it's Um, it's much 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 better now you know like you were saying it it does the scene does end on a more hopeful and mature note from obi-wan because it takes a lot especially from his age to admit that okay maybe there is something that i am yet to learn but before we get to that, there is this little little bit here where Qui-Gon leaves the cockpit to go meditate. And he says, quote, Don't worry, Obi-Wan. I won't leave you to fly the ship the entire time. I know how you dislike it. Obi-Wan laughed at his master's sarcasm. As Qui-Gon well knew, Obi-Wan loved flying. Which instantly I was like, I what? want to know more. This is not, I always I only know the Obi Wan who says flying is for droids. Where is this coming from? I need to know more. I've, this is a point of just like makes you instantly curious. Like, what this is this Obi Wan? Am I reading this right? Yeah, that's why I was asking earlier. I couldn't wait to talk about this part. Oh my god, what happened to this poor man? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to. He doesn't like flying anymore. It's a total like, one hundred and eighty. He, oh, he doesn't man. even like being the passenger anymore. You know, because like all the time with Anakin, he's like, oh, I hate when he does that. Oh, I hate when he does this. Anakin, please be careful. Oh, you know, I hate (laughs) flying. 
what happened to this guy? Oh, exactly. He liked flying at one point. That completely. No, he he loved flying. <laughs> loved flying at one point. That completely took me out of surprise. I did not expect that. Exactly. It's so great. That's all that we're given right there. Obi Wan yeah. loved flying, so we're just left wondering exactly what happened to this man. Who who ended his love for flying? It's just. It's not even that great. big of a deal. But like, if you're reading the books, obviously the details matter to you. Yeah. So like. I have to know what happened to this man. Like, exactly. as soon as I read it, I'm like, oh, man, Obi-Wan. What did, what happened to you, my friend? What happened? Exactly. That was, that was a great little funny, just mysterious moment almost in a great way. Yeah. But after Qui-Gon leaves, Obi-Wan is left to kind of marinate on the thoughts of his past disappointments, on this disconnect between him and his master. And, you know, he internally admits to frustration at Qui-Gon's, quote, renegade nature. Or there's this section from the book I'm just going to read and we can discuss it. Rules are rules for a reason, Obi-Wan thought as he stared out at the wavering electric blue light of hyperspace. They're not arbitrary. The Jedi rules exist to steer us toward the greater good and to reduce uncertainty. Better yet, rules could be memorized. They could be written down, studied, made certain. They were the opposite of the archaic mystical writings Qui-Gon seemed to value more than any other texts of the Order. Obi-Wan preferred certainty where it could be had. And maybe this comes at his young age, too, where he's, comparatively to Qui-Gon, he's at a more uncertain point in his life, where he prefers concrete things. And the rules allow him to simplify reality to that which he can both learn easily from as an apprentice and to understand, which is opposite. And we've been saying this over and over and over in this episode, opposite to Qui-Gon, who prefers, like Obi-Wan's saying, this abstract, the mystical... And Obi-Wan here, we're, we're gathering more and more that he still has this sense that the Jedi are infallible. And at this point, he can't conceive of how or why Qui-Gon can justify his rogue nature. It's so fascinating to get this from Obi-Wan's point of view here. What's your take on this little passage? Oh, I completely agree. I love hearing Obi-Wan's side about this. Like, you know, it takes me back to the Phantom Menace again. Why are you so you know persistent about training this boy? So, you know, in his head, he, why is he so against the rules? Rules are rules for a reason. Oh, it's such young Obi-Wan to a T. Oh, man, yeah. Claudia is just masterful at this thing. But, yeah, it, no, it you you just did such a good job describing that. I I, I don't have that much more to <laughs> add. But, no, I, I agree. I, I love this. I, really, this, this entire chapter in the Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon section is very insightful to yeah. what goes on and especially getting Obi-Wan's perspective since like you said the first ones were more geared towards Qui-Gon's you know inner thoughts now getting Obi-Wan's to kind of compare the two is it makes for a good like hearty healthy read you know when you eat like a really hearty bowl of cereal <laughs> and you're like wow <laughs> that feel that you know that felt right that felt good I feel good that's what it's like going back and forth between these two. It's it's great. It really is just getting those. It, it paints a more complete picture, and it's kind Correct. of it kind of hurts too because we see that they both feel shame here. They both are wanting to be better, and we just if they could just talk about it to each because they're not talking about it to each other. They're just thinking about it to themselves, and it's just that communication. Maybe that could solve things a little bit here, where it's we we just want them to do that just to open up, but. As you had said before, it does end on a brighter note for Obi-Wan, a more mature note where he's, you know, he does admit that maybe there's something that he can learn from Qui-Gon yet about what it means to be a Jedi. 
So, yeah, you know, to to touch on your point really quick, yeah, if they just would have talked, I think things would have went a lot smoother. Totally. But like in real life, like dude relationships are strange. Like when sometimes when things don't go, you know, well between two friends or you know even a kid and their dad, sometimes you just don't talk about it. Dude relationships, dudes just don't want to talk their problems out. They just want to let time kind of blow over everything because most of the time one side knows what the other side's going to say or what they're thinking or what they're feeling and they don't want to hear it. The other yeah. side feels the same way. So let's just keep our mouths shut and uh, I'll deal with this inside of me. You deal with it inside of you and eventually everything will be sunshine and rainbows again. We hope. It's, it's just the frustrating reality because you know we're realizing here with that silence the splintered nature of their relationship is just growing. And so we're just left like, stop being relatable right now. They're doing exactly what we'd expect them to do. And we hate, we hate that. <laughs> yeah. So. We, if they weren't fictional Jedi Star Wars characters, they, this is exactly how it, I, I would expect exactly. any human being to react pretty much. Exactly. <laughs> and so in the next scene of this chapter, we are back aboard the Merricks, which is Pax and Rahara's ship. And Pax here, this is in his point of view, he's wrestling with his feelings for Rahara. And we're getting this little backstory here where he's reflecting on when he first took her on as a crewmate, you know, Qui-Gon reflecting when he first took Obi-Wan on as his apprentice. You know, there was this chemistry between Pax and Rahara that they were just friends. It evolved to something more. I'm going to get this quote from Pax's thoughts here. Quote, one evening as they shared a bottle of wine, it had seemed as though things might, as though things might get out of hand. We see here there's this conflict between him being raised by protocol droids and thus finding emotion to be aversive and his natural human tendencies that might, might want to break through the surface where he was so close to admitting that his feelings for Rahara were something good, something that he could embrace. And then his protocol droid raised side shut that down instantly, which I thought that was, that was, that was interesting right there. You know, can you imagine being raised again? I know we talked about this, but can you Such imagine being phenomenon. raised by protocol droids? Because yeah, now you have to wrestle with like how you were raised versus what feels natural to you. Yeah. And yeah, he, he wants to be like, this is how I feel. But the protocol droid in him says, you feel nothing. <laughs> no feelings allowed. No emotion. Here. <laughs> nothing not allowed it's so interesting yeah <laughs> but again it's another it's another great parallel like you said and like we've been talking about since the beginning with the Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan relationship we started off getting insight with Qui-Gon and Rahara now we're getting insight with yeah. Pax and Obi-Wan and again discourse discomfort maturity in a way something's kind of blocking it that back and forth, I cannot stress how well done that is. You know, if I'm, I'm assuming most people that are listening to this either want to start reading the book or have already read the book once and want to learn more about it. It's such a seamless transition between character to character that I've told you this is my number two favorite Star Wars book of all time. And yeah. that's for a reason. The relationships make this book I mean, it's next level good. You know, only a few chapters in, and we're seeing the quality of, of the relationships that Claudia is building and introducing us to here. And you know, how, how frustrating these tensions can be, but how universal these kind of tensions are. Across Jedi to gemstone thieves, these are issues and tensions that everyone has to deal with in some kind of way. It's real, it's, you know, it's relatable, and it, it just makes the story mesh together pretty well. And so they emerge out of hyperspace to Pijal, 
It has this ancient planetary shield, which is I thought was pretty cool. And, you know, we, we're gathering that Pijal seems like it's a, a pretty nice planet. You know, Pax is noting that there's oceans and big islands and tropics. You know, usually we think of Naboo or Alderaan, you know, pre-nerf Alderaan when we think of beautiful planets. And uh, now Pajal seems to be on that, kind of on that tier. So they're they're going to Pajal's moon here before Rahara notices these Zerka Corporation ships. And, you know, at first Pax is confused by her lack of reaction to how beautiful Pajal is. And he's instantly worrying that he might have hurt her feelings. And that's another sign here that... Behind his protocol tendencies, he does genuinely care for her, which, you know, it's just like a little taste right there. But she points out these ships, and I think I remember learning about the Zerka Corporation from KOTOR. I don't know if you played those games. It seemed, I I had heard the name before, not a lot about them, but clearly this is a bad sign for Rahara, because Pax is noticing that she's, quote, pale and trembling, and she's visibly, like, haunted and disturbed. We're not given a lot again. It's just kind of building this suspense, kind of laying the foundation for the story to move on, but clearly not all is well here. That maybe what we had learned before with when she was reminiscing about her childhood being monitored and controlled, maybe there's a point of connection there with how she's feeling aversive all of a sudden out of nowhere towards these Zerka ships. And it just, it was a dark note to end on and maybe a point of connection there. Who's to say? That's how the chapter ends with some mystery there as to why she's feeling so strongly. She's scared. Pax is knowing that she's scared of this, but she chooses to go on with the mission. But there's something there. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Pax's emotions too, I think it was in the beginning of it too. He, you know, he apologizes to her. He tries to apologize to her about for hurting her feelings. And she says, you know, you didn't hurt my feelings. You just bothered me. Like, he was just more <laughs> annoying. Yeah. You know, he's like, it's basically it. I thought of I thought of 3PO, right? Where every Star Wars character that interacts with C-3PO is like, oh my God, you know, you're cool, but just shut up every once in a while. You're just bothering me. <laughs> yeah, you're just bothersome. And I think that that is Pax and Sahara right there. Pax is C-3PO and he's just yeah. bothering her. <laughs> but again, I like seeing the emotional struggle. I have a thing for tragedy. I have a thing for inner emotional turmoil when it comes to character arcs. You know, you start off and you read that Rahara is having this really visceral reaction to seeing the the circus ships, right? And you're like, okay, where is this going? And it makes you, you know, it makes your brain go, right? What's going to happen next? Why is she freaking out so personally towards this? Like, it's definitely, it's not just because there's some ships there. It's this particular group why and yeah it's great brilliant suspense from claudia you know it's not necessarily a cliffhanger but in the larger scheme of the story it's you want to know more as to why she's reacting yeah exactly like you said so viscerally towards this kind of put your antennas up right you're like what well you know what's going on here yeah well there's something more here but that is the end of chapter three and that's the end of this episode fred your thoughts on these three chapters before we close things out i mean we've heaped on the praise for claudia we already see her prowess and relationship building this was really fun to discuss with you yeah um well first of all i want to say thank you again for having me on this was a lot of fun uh i kept getting tongue twisted because you you summarize books so well it's like how do i top that (laughs) oh wait i can't let me see what my brain can come up with and usually it's nothing but chocolate pudding so um not a bad thing (laughs) So this book, I, I, we've been praising Claudia this whole time, 
But on a serious note, she writes relationships like no other Star Wars author can. And obviously we know Star Wars is not all about spaceships and blasters and weapons. It's, you know, family and emotional connections and disconnections. And she does and like ungodly job or more than like a divine job i don't even know how to put this into words she does an outstanding job writing all of these relationships and making the different relationships relatable to one another and in terms of chapters one through three it's one of the best intros to a star wars book because it's very seamless And, you know, you already know what to expect from Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, and that's exactly what you get. And you get two new characters that you just met, but you already feel like you know them because they're so similar, and their relationship is so similar to Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. So, I mean, just an outstanding job by Claudia, as always. I think you nailed that on the head, man. As much as Star Wars has, you know, the elements of, you know, starfighter battles and lightsaber duels, Claudia here... You know, these might not be the most action-packed first three chapters. You know, we did get that dose of, you know, the hallway chase scene initially to start the book, but the theme of these first three chapters, we're learning about how Star Wars is more about the people behind these struggles and the, the conflict that they have to endure between themselves and also internally, and I think Claudia captured that so well, and I'm really excited to delve more into that as the season progresses, as we get further into, into the book. Fred? Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know, if the listeners wanted to find you on the internet to find your work, where could they do so? Absolutely. So uh, thank you for having me on again. This was a ton of fun. And uh, you can find me all over the internet. I'm almost everywhere. I'm not on Facebook. But you can find me on Twitter at Death Star Dispat. Ends with the T because I have a character limit. And <laughs> you can find me on Instagram at Death Star Dispatch. And anywhere you listen to podcasts, I have a podcast called well death star dispatch and uh search for that anywhere you listen to your podcast you will be able to get that and i think my my biggest uh content piece is my youtube channel uh youtube is death star dispatch same thing Uh, i do a lot of different stuff i'm doing a lot of squadrons at this moment in time i'll do lego star wars when that comes out but i have a you know heavy focus on collecting heavy focus on uh really anything that i just kind of feel like doing that day a lot of people like to take, make, you know, make a niche on the YouTube side. I think the podcast podcast should have a niche, but on the YouTube side, people like to really pick one or two things and kind of stick with that. I love so many aspects of Star Wars. I can't just pick one thing. You know, <laughs> I'm going to talk about as much as I can. One day I might want to talk about a theory. The other, the next day I might want to do a book review. The next day I might want to pop open a toy and share it with you guys. So that's what I'm all about. So come on by, say hello, and you know, hit subscribes, and you know, thanks. Yeah, listeners, I will post the links to Fred's uh, internet presences, his YouTube channel, podcast, in the episode description. I can't speak highly enough about his work. I had the great honor to be on his podcast uh, the other week to talk Star Wars books. But if you're looking for a content creator that, you know, like he's saying, he's got the jack of all trades, you know, he does it, you know, he touches a little bit of everything in the Star Wars universe. If you're looking for quality content with passion behind it, you're going to want to check out the, uh, Death Star Dispatch. I've learned a lot about collecting so far. You know, I never thought that I I would, but Fred does a great job with that. And your Squadrons content is really helpful for me just getting into the game. So listeners, please go check out Fred's work. You won't be disappointed. Give him a sub. He deserves it because he is 
one of my favorite content creators in the Star Wars community. So thank you so much for coming on the show, man, and for talking about this book. This was a lot of fun. And before we close up today, I'll give our discussion question for these chapters. So to think about in the next couple of weeks, the tension between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan and Pax and Rahara has been prominent early on. Is Qui-Gon right to wish Obi-Wan had a new master? Is Pax Narahara's mentality of awkwardly trying to work through the tension the better strategy? Or do they all fall short due to lack of communication? And what similarities do you see between the pairs? And listeners, I will post the question to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please send us a response on any of those platforms or by email to outerrimreadspod at gmail.com. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to follow Outer Rim Reads on social media to stay up to date on the show and our discussion questions, feel free to give us a follow on Twitter at Outer Rim Read Pod and on Facebook and Instagram at Outer Rim Reads Pod. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha. It is hosted by Andrew Geha. It is produced by Andrew Geha. It is edited by Andrew Geha. And we will be back in two weeks with episode 23. So until then, sit back and enjoy. We've got new hollow screens installed. I hear a Viractal racing is on in a few minutes. Grab yourself a glass of Lothal Spice Brew and enjoy the show.